every orthodox shul at least should be sending out here is the link um or maybe we're going to be actually showing the funeral on a big screen in the auditorium or in the main synagogue and we're inviting and we're asking everyone to come because this is a levaya not just for this family this is a tragedy for all of Klal Yisrael. We all have to be there. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. With the terrible and heartbreaking news that came out of Israel over the course of Pesach, a mother and two children murdered by terrorists, a car ramming in Tel Aviv with an Italian tourist dead and others injured, plus rockets launched at Israel from Lebanon and Gaza, I've been concerned about the relationship between Jews in Israel and the diaspora. My experience or opinion is not objective fact, obviously, and there are many exceptions to what I'm about to assert. Still, I think that there's a very different mindset a different way of thinking about events like these for many Jews who live in Israel and many of those who don't. It seems to me that many people who live outside of Israel didn't experience the events that took place in Israel with the same heaviness and the same sense of gravity that those who live here did. And I think that this disconnect, which bothers me terribly, deserves a serious conversation. I mentioned this on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook, and my post instigated some interesting discussion. Some people felt as I did. Others disagreed. A third group said that I'm right, but that this distinction in emotion is the same as the divergence that people in different communities anywhere experience and doesn't represent any lack of care about Israel or the Israeli Jewish population. That may be true, but somehow this only furthers my point even more. Is Israel, emotionally if not intellectually, just another Jewish community like any other? Is the proximity and ease of getting to Israel and communicating with people in Israel a double-edged sword, taking away some of the mystery and sense of holiness that people otherwise would have. Moreover, what's the place of diaspora Jewry? Is their only role to pack up and move to Israel? Or is there a need for Jewish communities to thrive outside of Israel? How can we better inculcate a sense of solidarity with Jews in Israel and with what's happening in Israel? Is the emotional gap between Israelis and those outside of Israel destined to get larger or smaller? To discuss these and other questions, I was honored to speak to Rabbi Mark Wilds, the founder and director of Manhattan Jewish Experience. I spoke to Rabbi Wilds in episode 127, entitled Rediscovering Passionate Judaism for Orthodox and Non-Orthodox Jews. I received a lot of positive feedback about that interview, so I'm pleased to bring Rabbi Wilds back for this important conversation. We'll get to our discussion in a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. 
But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Mark Wilds is the founder and director of Manhattan Jewish Experience, MJE, a highly successful Jewish outreach and educational program that has resulted in 344 Jewish marriages. The program engages and reconnects unaffiliated Jewish men and women in their 20s and 30s with Judaism and the Jewish community. He is the author of The 40-Day Challenge, Daily Jewish Insights to Prepare for the High Holidays, and Beyond the Instant, Jewish Wisdom for Lasting Happiness in a Fast-Paced Social Media World. Rabbi Wiles earned a BA in Psychology from Yeshiva University, a law degree from the Cardozo School of Law, a master's degree in international affairs from Columbia University, and rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Mark Wiles, thank you very much for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It is an honor and pleasure to be here, Scott. Let's start by addressing my fundamental assumption that I just mentioned, that Jews who live in Israel, by and large, experience triumph and tragedy in Israel in a fundamentally different way from those who live in Chutzlaretz, including Jews who are Orthodox or religiously committed. Of course, I know, Rabbi Wiles, there are exceptions, and I'm not trying to castigate anybody in particular. I'm talking about a general type of attitude. I nevertheless, despite my reservations and despite my caveats just now, think that this trend is real. Do you think my assumption is correct, or am I off base? No, I think you're correct, and I think what happened over Pesach the terrible tragedies that took place in Israel, uh, the terrorist attacks, really kind of bring this out. They really do demonstrate the issue. You know, ideologically, you can be so committed to Israel, but if you're not living there and you don't have kids in the army and you're just, your day-to-day just does not change in America or in Europe, wherever you happen to live as a diaspora Jew, if you're not in Eretz Israel living and walking the walk and the kids in the army and just you're not going to feel it just on a human emotional level you know and all of the Rav Cook religious zionism and all of the inspiration that we could teach our kids in yeshiva day schools um or try as what i try to do inspire my students who didn't have the benefit of a day school background and try to explain to them how imperative israel is and living in israel it's you're still six thousand miles away and it's not part of your day-to-day reality and um, and that's one of the sad parts, honestly, of living in Galut, in, in, in the diaspora, is we're not going to feel the same feelings. We're just not. It's just on a human level. I think you're right. One of the ways that I experienced it myself, let's speak about Cholomoy, for example. I felt that it was very, very heavy here. And obviously, my own experience yeah. in terms of family and friends who live in Chutzlaretz is only anecdotal, and I, I can't express enough that I know there are exceptions to this. So no one should feel personally slighted or insulted by this. But we, my family, we went and did activities in Holomoid, as did all people in Israel and all people in Chutzlaretz mm. who had the opportunity to be with friends and family. And my general feeling was that we were doing it despite what happened, or maybe in spite of what happened, sort of, I'm not going to say it's such defiance, but it was always there in the background. It was the air that we were breathing, whereas it seemed from perhaps social media posts, which I know are not such a good gauge of truth, but it seemed that in America, it was more ignored by many people, and they might acknowledge it, 
and they might put an Israeli flag on their social media post. But then afterwards, they went about their business and it wasn't necessarily part of the way they were thinking. It wasn't in the air the way that it was here. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a very accurate way of depicting it. It was not in the air. I, I was a rabbi in one of these hotels in Florida. And um, I was there with two other rabbis. And one of the others got up and, and, and announced on Yom Tov what happened. And... Um, and we made him a shiberach, and we say some tehillim, but then everybody went about their day. Now, you just said you went about your day also, because you have to. If you don't go about your day, then it will paralyze the entire country. We cannot let that to happen. But it's not the same. Now, I think there's a little of a middle category. I have four children, Bliyan Hara. Three are now in Israel. Okay, my oldest basically is making aliyahs, living there, and my two younger ones are, are in seminary. And my daughter, who's who just literally went back yesterday, she's spending this Shabbat in Efrat. So all of Yuntif, she's thinking about what's the energy like in Efrat. Because she's in Israel and because we have friends who know people and, and everybody knows somebody, then you're gonna feel it more. If you're there, you're gonna you're gonna feel you're in the atmosphere, you know, you're in it. But in the diaspora, let's we have to be honest, you're just not gonna, you know, and, and the more time we spend in Israel, the more seriously we consider Aliyah, the more connections we have through our children and other close relatives and friends, the more we're going to feel it. And that's why most of American Jewry doesn't feel this at all. I hate to say it. Yeah, my wife actually pointed out when I was discussing with these questions with her in advance, she said, also, I should note the difference between Israelis who were visiting Chutzlaretz for Pesach and people who live in Chutzlaretz permanently. You're giving a parallel situation of people who live in Chutzlaretz but who have family in Israel or who are planning to visit Israel for a certain amount of time. That middle category, it's not the same. Those people feel it much more acutely than people who just lack that connection in that same kind of way. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm most concerned. I, listen, I think we're living in very, very special times, you know. I grew up, we probably grew up in similar types of backgrounds. I would say probably 40, 50% of my chevre that I grew up with made Aliyah. Okay, but I see with my kids, it's more now, right? Our kids are going to be bringing us back, and they are. My oldest, I mentioned, has, has made Aliyah, and my other two that are there now are very gung-ho, and they'll probably be there. I'm concerned about the the, the very large majority of American Jews who, because they, they, this is not on mainstream media, these these terrorist attacks do not get covered uh, on CNN or even Fox. They're not, unless you're getting like Yeshiva News WhatsApps, you know, updates. You're not finding out about this stuff. So 70-80% of American Jews, uh, Daniel Gordis, who I'm a big fan of, wrote a book called We Stand Divided. And it's the rift. He writes about the rift between American Jews and Israel. Now he's he's speaking not really about the Orthodox community because there's such... And I'm not saying this in any kind of, you know, happy way. You know, this is not said with any glee or, you know, being triumphant in any way. But there's such connections between most Orthodox Jews and Israel today, even in the Haredi world, just because of the year or two that people are spending in their gap years um, in all segments of the Orthodox world. Not, not all segments, but most. But, you know, most of my students who maybe been on a birthright trip and don't go to Israel every year, maybe go you know, every couple of years to Israel, if, if, if at all, you know, then unfortunately the relationship between what happens in Israel and here becomes very much dependent on, it's almost conditional, 
like how are my brothers and sisters living in Israel if they live a life over there? This is what Daniel Gorda seems to be arguing to some degree, that if they live a life over there that really reflects my values here, then I it will resonate with me. But if they don't, and they hire all these, uh, they create like a, you know, a right-wing coalition that seems to be anti-democratic, in my opinion, then um, I'm just not going to have very much feeling for Israel at all. I feel, at least within orthodox circles, and I'm generalizing, of course, that there's more of an unconditional love for Israel, irrespective, and I like to believe this, maybe I'm being naive, but irrespective of who they elect to office, what policies they enact, we're just going to continue to love and support and go to Israel because it's like a it's 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 a it's a family member. It's a family member. You don't question the policies of your family members. You just your family with them. You might say that it's unconditional. I will generally agree with that. But that's not the same thing as feeling that same sense of I am supposed to be there. Now again, I told you off right. the air, I am not somebody right. who's a card carrying. Everybody must move to Israel. There's no excuse not to come to Israel. I believe there are reasons why a person cannot, maybe even should not come to Israel. I firmly believe that. Mm -hmm. I also think that there is a major problem when somebody doesn't even see the possibility of being in Israel right. as a real possibility in his or her life when the concept is simply foreign to them. I'll give you an example. In my much more stupid youth, I hope it's more stupid, uh, certainly, certainly I think it's more stupid youth, I remember one time asking somebody when I was visiting the States, actually over Pesach, maybe 25 years ago, and I didn't mean it to put him on the spot. Just a friend of mine, I said, oh, by the way, have you ever thought about Aliyah? This is somebody that I've been in yeshiva with. He looked at me the same way that I would look at you if you asked me if I thought about moving to Brazil. What? Why would I ever even consider that? I don't want to claim I can read his mind, but that did make a, an impression upon me, this idea of you wouldn't even consider it. Again, maybe there are good reasons not to make Aliyah. I have lots of family, and I know they have good reasons not to make Aliyah. I'm not criticizing, but if it's not even on your radar screen, I think that might be true for a lot of Jews, even in the Orthodox community too, though, on some level. You know, that's, well, then there's something off, really off in our educational system. Like, I get and I'm one of them, that people don't make Aliyah for whatever legit reasons. But the default and the mitzvah, whether the Rambam writes it, includes it or not, you know, the technical issue there is that it's a meta, it's a meta type of imperative as far as any, you know, religious personality within the Jewish community. I, I don't get how you can go through the yeshiva day school system, you know, with the exception of like sort of extreme uh, you know, elements within the Hasidic world that are very anti-Zionist and therefore don't even go there and benefit from like the, how could you not? I mean, I'm surprised to hear that. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong. To hear. I don't live there. So perhaps I'm, I'm projecting something which isn't necessarily true. It's something which I've seen, but maybe it's not nearly as widespread as I'm making it out to be. Uh, I think it exists even in the Orthodox world. I do. Um, I think, I think that, you know, there's a little cognitive dissonance probably, uh, where people might, on one hand, intellectually know they should be living in Israel, but they're too comfortable here, or it's too difficult of a, you know, a cultural divide to 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 bridge. Whatever the reasons are, I just like you know, let's just be honest, right? You, you can't really, in my opinion, learn Torah seriously and not understand that Israel has always been the epicenter of Jewish history and the very very focus and focal point of our Torah and mitzvot. 
Okay. I teach this to my students and I say, I'm sorry if I'm making you feel uncomfortable, but I want to be intellectually honest. It's just, how can you study Tanakh? How can you study Shas Poskim, everything, and 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 not see Israel as the central? You know, um, now, whether or not you can neatly fit into one of those categories <laughs> that is permissible now, like you can't earn a living there, your family isn't there, you can't learn Torah well there, I'm doing Kirov over here, whatever your justifications are, and I'm not saying they're not legit, but those are the justifications, right? Those are the exceptions which prove the rule that the Jew belongs in Israel. Uh, the question is what we can do to get people to feel more. And by the way, this is an old problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, what do you I mean by that? Well, the first Jews who made Aliyah, <laughs> who were going to go in under Yehoshua, before Yehoshua, they came to Moshe, you know, and Reuven and God, and they said we'd prefer if we could stay here on the east bank of the Jordan River. Moshe was not happy. What, you're going to sit here pretty because it's a nice place for your cattle to graze, and your brothers are going to be chalutzim, and they're going to fight over there? Really? I actually heard something very powerful from Rabbi Shachter, my teacher, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Jacob J. Shachter. So it's Reuven and God that approach Moshe, but who actually settles on the East Bank and does not make Aliyah? So it was Reuven and God. They brokered a whole compromise, right? They'll fight with Israel. They'll settle the land and then they'll come back. Chatzis Shevet Menashe. Never understood that. What's the deal with half of the tribe of Menashe? Half the tribe is going to live in Israel. Half the tribe is going to live out. This is interesting. So Rabbi Shachter suggested, he had some sources to back this up, that it was purposeful to take half a tribe and put in Israel in half. That way there'll be always a connection between diaspora and Israeli Jews. Because if you have your other mishpacha is living in Israel, just like my kids are doing their gap year, you're going to feel more connected because half your tribe is there. But this is an old problem. Jews always wanted to stay chutz la'aretz. There's a lot there that you mentioned, and I appreciate it. I mean, right now in front of me on my desk, you can't see it. I have the Sefer Mitzvot, the Ramban's Hasagot on it open, and oh, where yeah. he's, he quotes the Sifri where these four Tanaim were walking, and they realized they were outside of Israel. They were in a city in Italy, and they raised their eyes up, and they tore their clothes, and their tears were flowing, and the whole idea of not being in Israel was just so painful for them. That passion, that sense of the importance of being in Israel, and even though they weren't in Israel, they had left Israel, that sense of connection to the land itself, not just to the people, but to the fact that I should be there sometimes is lacking. I want to throw something out, Rabbi Wallace. I'm curious what yeah. you think about this, because I wonder if part of the problem might be over-familiarity. Now, obviously, it's a wonderful thing that if you in New York want to go to Israel, you could be there in 13 hours from now. It, it wouldn't be a problem. It could happen. And that's a great thing. The fact that I can speak to my parents over WhatsApp, as soon as we get off this call, if I want to call them, I can look at them. They can look at me. The connections are strong. Those are all brachot. These are good things. I also remember something that I read from Rav Steinzeltz, that's all. He talked in a book that he wrote about secrets, meaning he says there's such a thing as a real secret and there is a fake secret. A fake secret is the secret of the magician, the illusionist. The power of the secret is in the fact that I don't know what it is. As soon as I find out the secret, the mystery's gone, the magic's gone, the holiness is gone. A real mm -hmm. secret, he said, is the kind of secret that the more you learn about it, the more holy it becomes, the more secretive it becomes. He was saying this in the context of the first chapters of Brashit. He said, every door you open, there are two more locked doors behind that one. The more you see, the more secretive it becomes. And I think, this is really not our topic today, and I, I am getting to the point, I think that 
apart from halachic issues, one of the reasons that I don't really like when people go to Harabayit is because I don't think that most of us, certainly I'm not, are on the level to see the Kedusha there. You'll go up there and you'll just see a mosque. You'll see a mountain. I've never been up there. I've been to Hakotel and I've looked over it, but I've never really been there. And I figure if we're not on the level to have this be a real secret, that we can really appreciate the Kedusha of that place, at least let it remain some sort of fake secret, a secret where I don't really know what's there, so I can always imagine something else, as opposed to having that door open and the mystery is gone. I wonder if the same thing might be true on some level for Israel, because everyone can go to Israel. Most Orthodox Jews maybe in America have visited Israel. Maybe that's a fair statement. It's so easy to see what's there. I remember the first time people ever see the Kotel. It's an amazing thing. Well, now mm-hmm. that happens for people when they're two years old. They see it on TV. They see it. It's, it the mystery's gone. I wonder if that means that on some level, that specialness has been lost. And maybe not intellectually, but deep down, we, we kind of consider Israel a really big Jewish community, kind of like Muncie or the Five Towns or Teaneck. And not with that special kedusha that it deserves. Do you think I'm off base here? Or do you think there's something to that? I don't. I think you have to. Everything is a cost-benefit analysis in life. It's a great issue you're raising because it's so. Not familiarity breeds contempt. It's like when Orthodox Jews go to shul. Why? How come conservative Reform Jews generally don't speak in synagogue or temple? They don't go as often. They don't feel as comfortable there. They're a little more respectful. Well, familiarity breeds indifference. Exactly. So, well, yeah, the word was contempt, but I didn't want to go that far. No, but so, I want to say that in reality, for Jews, <laughs> reality, it's indifference, you know. It, it creates indifference, but it also takes away the fear of the unknown. And I wonder, and we don't have a nefesh benefesh person sitting here to tell us what the facts are, actually, but I wonder, because of technology and because we can get on a plane and be there in 13 hours and speak to our families on WhatsApp and see them, whether that takes a little, yeah, it removes some of the mystery but it removes the fear that so many of us had growing up when we didn't really know what was going on or we didn't feel as connected to the place. When you feel more connected and you know more about what's happening, you could somehow relate to it more regularly in an enormative way. And I think that's going to encourage Aliyah. You know, I, I think it has, and, and I, I again, I don't have the statistics to back this up, but anecdotally, I think more people are, are living there today. More of my chavra have made Aliyah simply because it's more doable and because they can come and go. And maybe they have a, maybe they hold on to their place in Teaneck and they go for a year. And one of my friends just did this. It's an experiment for a year. My cousins who made Aliyah live in Ranana years ago. That's the way they started. They went for a year. And you could do that with the WhatsApp. You can do that with the 13 hours. You couldn't really do that so much before. So I feel like technology has really helped the Aliyah. And 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 I think it's also keeping us more connected. And I think that's a positive thing, ultimately. Is it true that some of the special, yeah, yeah, but the question is, which is which is a stronger wave? Well, yeah, I'm also not saying that we should turn back the clock. I certainly recognize everything you're saying. I'm not even saying these are bad things. I'm wondering if these are contributing factors. All the brachot of being able to go to Israel so easily might have a negative consequence that was unintended, that now it's not so special anymore. I remember Rabbi Wiles reading mm-hmm. about the Rav, Rav Salavashik Zetzal, his Malamed in Russia, his Chabad Malamed way back then. A person came from Israel and was telling the Malamed about it. And the Rav was watching this, at least as I remember the story. Rabbi Riskin. Rabbi Riskin told me the story. It was in 19. Okay, so why don't you tell the story? Because you'll... Yeah, but what's the point you're trying to draw out? And then I'll... uh... Well, the Malamed looked at this person's hands, this Jew's hands who touched the Kotel, who touched the stones of Yerushalayim. 
Does anybody think in those terms anymore to stare at somebody's hands because he'd been in Yerushalayim? Of course not, but that's because everyone's done that, or at least many people have done that. This idea of the specialness of hands that actually had been in Yerushalayim, I think Uh, we might have lost that. I'm not saying we should. Obviously, we can't have that sense of mystery, but we have lost something. Yeah, yeah, there's no question. We've lost... Did I get the story right at least? No, I'm thinking of a different story. <laughs> the same Malamed, by the way. Okay, Rabbi what Riskin was the story you had? Visit. Rabbi Riskin went to visit uh, Russia at the behest of the Lubavitch Rebbe in 1970. He told me this. And he went into a, um, the great synagogue of Moscow from Mincha uh, just during the week. And there was an older man giving a shear to about eight or nine old elderly people. And the Magid shear came over to Rabbi Riskin. He was about 24 at the time. And said, Shalom Aleichem, where are you from? He said, New York, where do you learn? Yeshiva University. Oh, do you know my student? Your student? Who's your student? Yashaber. And he calls the rub by his first name. And he wrote a note for Rav Salvechik. He gave to Rav Riskin. Rav Riskin handed the note to the rub. And the rub just read it and started bawling, started crying. That was his uh, Chabad Malamed as a child. Who had such an influence on him. Such an influence. You know, I, it's hard for me to gauge this. It, it, it feels to me, though, that um, the technology and the familiarity is helping Jews come back to Israel. Um, maybe there's a segment in the Orthodox world or, or outside the Orthodox world that is, because I want to share something else which is really exciting, um, That that is like, ah, I don't really need to live there. I can keep going back and forth. I'll get an apartment in... Um, wherever in Netanya, if you have a, a, a couple of extra bucks i'll go there and i'll, I'll keep one day of yontif yeah but listen those jews are helpful too are they not is, is it not is it not helpful i mean it does drive real estate prices up and make it harder for israelis that's a whole other discussion but but scott i want to share something else which is very powerful you're probably aware of this but i don't know how many of your listeners are aware that there's an aliyah happening today amongst the segment of American Jewry that never happened before. And that's my target population, 20s and 30s, conservative reform, unaffiliated or less affiliated. If they were unaffiliated, they wouldn't be going to Israel. Um, but but involved, but not Orthodox Jews are making aliyah. And I know this because I've been teaching. I've been going for the last couple of uh, just last year. I've I've gone on a couple of trips to teach in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is, is exploding with Anglo-Saxons that have made Aliyah, who are not necessarily going for religious Zionist reasons. They're not necessarily religious Zionists. They're going because Tel Aviv is just a a great place to live. I don't know how anyone is affording it. It's crazy, <laughs> but. Um, my colleague, Rabbi Jonathan Feldman, I'll give him a shout out. He made Aliyah four years ago. He was our East Side director at MGE for 17 years. And he went and hooked it up with another gentleman from MGE, one of our Bali Chuva, Jay Schultz. Give him a big shout out. He made Aliyah 15 years ago. Okay. And he's been doing outreach work there. Jonathan, Rabbi Feldman, connected with Jay, started a branch called Tribe Tel Aviv. And MJE now, we're going to be sending one of our couples that we trained, who's making Aliyah anyway, but we convinced them to move to Tel Aviv. And we're going to be doing outreach with who? American Jews living in Tel Aviv. Now, I taught a class just a couple of weeks ago there. I had over 50 people that showed up at the class. Uh, We used um, Yakar, which is in Tel Aviv. It was a beautiful group. I would say about out of the 55 people, about 35 were Americans. The rest were Brits and French and uh, so other Anglos 
that are and not religious, not orthodox there. at least. No, not orthodox. We probably had six or seven sabras in there, you know, but mostly Anglo's that made Aliyah on their own. And 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 I imagine some of them made Aliyah obviously for idealistic reasons. You know, just because you're not observant doesn't mean you you can't make Aliyah for, of, of you know, they're Zionists, and thankfully we still have those those Jews left. <laughs> um, but I just want you to be aware, what your listeners, to know that this is a a new phenomena which is incredible, and it's it, it we should all be encouraged by that. I'm very encouraged by that. I actually want to. I'm not going to say I'm going to push back, but maybe ask you. Even those people who are not "quote unquote" Zionists, they're not coming for religious reasons per se. Maybe this is the mystic in me. Maybe it's the Rav Cook in me. I don't know. But mm-hmm. I would argue that the fact that yes, Tel Aviv is a great place to live, but they could have chosen Paris. They could have chosen Rome. They could have chosen London. They could have chosen Los Angeles. There are a lot of great places to live. The fact yep. that these Jews, who are not coming from a religious perspective, nevertheless chose Tel Aviv as opposed to all the other really exciting nightlife cities in the world, says something about their Jewish neshama inside, whether it's conscious mm-hmm. or subconscious or superconscious. I think something else is going on there. I think the Jewish soul is drawing them back to Israel on some deeper level. I don't know if you agree with me, yeah. but I would say that yeah. even if they're not Zionists, on some level, there's something else going on there. A hundred percent. I'm a big, I love Rav Cook and I love that aspect of his teaching that deep down within the heart of every Jew however strange they might be from Yiddishkeit per se is a love for Eretz Yisrael. Um, I do believe that's, that's, that's here. And I also believe on a simpler non-Kabbalistic metaphysical level that you do have, they're just more comfortable there. there it, it's a country filled with Jewish people. And we have a lot of young, I, I have so many, you know, students in their twenties and they're computer science, they're engineers, they're, 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 they good jobs in Tel Aviv for, for this kind of, and and why not go to a country where everything is kosher? Even if you don't keep kosher, it's still like a nice thing. And it's a little more of a warm, friendly, easier place to make, you know, to 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 earn a living and to live than some country where you don't have your brothers and sisters. So I, I'm just thrilled that uh, I mean, I have personally students who have made Aliyah or going back and forth. What's amazing is Rabbi Feldman and I, the, the Jonathan Feldman I mentioned before, he just texted me last week so-and-so from Tel Aviv, he's coming back to New York. He's going back and forth a little. It's kind of going back to what you said. He's not exactly sure if he's making Aliyah or not, but he's going to be in New York for the next six weeks. Can you have him at your home for Shabbos? I just had him last week, for you know, right before Pesach. He came over. We're living in that kind of time right now where people are kind of checking out Israel. They're going back and forth. And I just think it's a very exciting opportunity. And, um, I, I I just want to make sure that our brothers and sisters are not going to get lost in the Holy Land because you can get lost in Israel too, spiritually. It's true. The one fortunate thing is getting lost in the Holy Land means that your children can be found, whereas yeah. getting lost in the United Correct. States or anywhere else means that they're probably gone for all time. Unfortunately, the intermarriage, you know, unless we have a real peace process, thankfully, intermarriage is not an issue today in Israel. So if somebody makes Aliyah, and that is definitely a goal of our work is to encourage Jewish, you know, in marriage. Uh, Aliyah, we've had about we've had over 40 of our participants who have made Aliyah over the years. And um, I would say half of them are from Orthodox. I would say the other half are somewhere between Orthodox and Reform. And I'm proud of them all. And, I, and, and, and they're all keeping a huge mitzvah that many Orthodox Jews in, in, in America are not. And they are, they are ensuring, 
the continuity of our people. They are. You know, what you're saying now really is encouraging. And I really do feel the exact same way, that when I see people who are not religious making Aliyah, I look at it as such a miracle in its own way. The fact that Jews who aren't religious, if you're religious, maybe it's not a miracle. Maybe it just means you want to fulfill the mitzvot. And this place is a mitzvah. It's also a heksher mitzvah. And it might be a macro mitzvah. There are all sorts of ways to look at it. But bottom line, God said move, so we do. People who aren't religious are calling or responding to some sort of other call, whether it's a social call or a mystical call or a soul call. Something else is going on, and I always find it very, very encouraging and inspiring also. My wife and kids were sort of laughing at me. I don't know if you heard this. Maybe you were even involved. I don't know. But one of the stars of Law & Order SVU from years back, Diane Neal, made Mm -hmm. Aliyah a few weeks ago. If, mm-hmm. if, oh, I, did, I didn't know. Oh, cool. It was on. It was up on uh, the Nefesh Benefesh Facebook page, and I asked my future daughter-in-law who works at Nefesh Benefesh, is this real or is this an April Fool's joke? I didn't know, and she <laughs> right. checked, and it was real, and I saw her sitting with Rabbi Fast from Nefesh Benefesh, and it's 100% wow. true. Now, I, I don't know if she's become more religious. I don't know, but my wife said, why do you care? I mean, it's nice, but what I said, because I find these things so inspiring when somebody I wouldn't have expected to respond to that divine call somehow does anyway, for whatever reason. I still find it very inspiring. That's how I see it, at least. It's it's very inspiring, and it's and it's a pushback a little on what we experience. There are approximately seven hundred fifty thousand Israelis living in the United States, Los Angeles, New York. You know, I walk on the street. I hear Hebrew on the streets of New York all the time, and unfortunately, we lose a lot of those Jews, um, particularly the ones who come here single. Um, and by the way, anytime you want to meet one of them, you just have to have a problem with your lock and they show up because they're all locksmiths for the first three <laughs> years when they come here. Well, that didn't sound insulting, but it's just true for a lot of them. And and, uh, you know, what what this does, the fact that Jews who are not observant making Aliyah, what it's showing, it's such a good PR. <laughs> it's such good PR because we need and maybe I don't know for you, Scott, you live in Israel. You know, it must it, it must be distressing that professors of universities and CEOs of big companies, you know, because they can make more money in America or they're fed up with the politics in Israel. Israel's too small for them. So they come to America or some other country. You know, I just heard there's a big aliyah to Portugal because it's so, aliyah, excuse me, Yerida, that there are Jews living in Portugal from Israel because it's just, it's difficult financially on the real estate end to be living in Israel. So there are Jews moving to Lisbon, Portugal. And um, that's distressing, that's upsetting, but it's offset, it's pushed back a little when you have people who could live anywhere in the world, they're doing fine in New York, but they prefer to move to Tel Aviv. And I'm very encouraged with that. Okay, let's get back to what we were speaking about earlier. And I wanna ask you a little bit more about diaspora Jewry. Do you think that diaspora Jewry as an entity is something that we should support or is our larger goal to get them from and get them to Israel. For example, I know there are some very small communities. Very, like, for example, I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. I've spoken to people about this before. You know that. A place like Lowell, Massachusetts, now the Orthodox community, I think, is basically defunct. But 20 years ago, some people would say the goal of a rabbi in a place like Lowell would be just get them from and get them to move to a bigger community. Would you say the same thing is true for all of Chutzlar, it's all of the diaspora? The job is to eventually get them to Israel or does diaspora Jewry have a reason for existing independent of just being a way station on the way to Israel? And I'm speaking on a pre-Messianic level. Let's not speak about the ultimate Gula. I mean, it, it, it's such a great question. You know, emotionally, I could, it's so hard for me to say just on a purely emotional 
spiritual level that we would give up on any Jewish community anywhere in the world. You know, if you would tell me the alternative is Aliyah, okay, I hear you. But the alternative is not Aliyah. The alternative for most American Jews is not like we give up on them. They're 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 gonna, you know, we're pumping too much money. Maybe maybe that maybe that does apply to the Orthodox world. Maybe if we keep pumping more resources into Orthodoxy in America, we're just making it easier to stay here. And otherwise people would actually go. But that's not true of the 70 to 80% of American Jews who are just gonna assimilate and intermarry, and we're gonna lose them. So if we don't build up their Jewish community, we lose them. It's as simple as that. And th that was sort of the equation, it seems, of Rav Salvechik. He never pushed Aliyah, you know, and uh, he 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 pushed rabbis to stay in America to, to serve their flock here because he felt like we're gonna lose these Jews if we don't. He was thinking more about Yiddishkeit than he was, you know, about Zionism on some level or about Aliyah per se. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this sort of encapsulates your question. For years, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, um, Zechron Levracha, who was my teacher and mentor, so he used to go to Grus, which you know is Yeshiva University's Beit Midrash and center for YU in Jerusalem. My son is studying there now. He would say, you had your year in Grus, it's time to come back and serve American Jewry. Dr. Israel Miller, who I also adored, he was the vice president of YU, would get up after Rabbi Lamb, would give this whole pitch about coming back to America, and he would say, there's a lot of work to be done here too, and this is where we ultimately belong. So I think you should stay here. <laughs> now, that was like classic Yeshiva University, academic freedom. We say whatever we want, even if a country, if you know, that's why if YU was a business, it would have gone defunct years ago <laughs> because it's like, it doesn't really have, it, it like reflects multiple views. And those are the two different views, you know? And as an outreach rabbi, it, it just pains me. I can't just come back to you and say, give up on Lowell, Massachusetts. If there are Jews left in Lowell. Now, does it pay? To pay to you know how much money and how much resources do you pump into law? By the way, just to tell you, I played, I was in the the band, I was the drummer for Segula Orchestras when Ari Salamat called me up and said, "I want you to come, opening of the mikvah in Lowell." I drove out to Lowell with my <laughs> drums in the back seat of my car, and I went there to play for the opening of. Okay, I understand the community is no longer, but it was twenty five years ago, right? Was that a bad investment? No, but I'm really asking more, Rabbi Wiles, not in terms of giving up on any Jew, which I agree, of course we can't do that. But if we're looking long-term, I'm more asking on a theoretical level, is the diaspora as a thing, as an entity, something which has its own integrity? And even if everyone were from, let's say, for example, there's no more Kiruv to be done. Let's imagine a world in which every Jew already is a Torah Jew, however that's defined. Okay, there's no more Kiruv to be done, assimilation's at zero. At that point, should diaspora Jewry voluntarily cease to exist and everyone yes. should move to Israel? Yes. It doesn't have yes. its own independent integrity. Not in my opinion. Okay. I, I'm answering this from my understanding of my limited understanding of Torah. It doesn't seem like there would be a justification unless you need, unless the people remaining in the diaspora are remaining here because they have elderly parents. They're remaining here because they can't earn a living in Israel. They're remaining here because for whatever reason they can't learn Torah on that level whatever it is, and they fit into one of those categories. So you need to support that group. But that's, you know, you don't you don't have to create an institution then. You just create what is necessary for that group to live a religious life in the diaspora. You don't have to start having federations and UJAs and, and, and JCCs and everything we have in America. 
we have that, in my opinion, to keep Jews Jewish. Because without those institutions, I'm not saying we need all those institutions, by the way, but without many of those institutions, <laughs> that may Jews, be Yavin. <laughs> yeah, Jews cease to remain Jewish. And our first allegiance is not to the land of Israel. Our first allegiance, in my opinion, is to Jewish people. Now, someone sitting and listening to this is probably thinking, well, what's the best place to keep Jews Jewish? Eretz Israel. So that's a legitimate answer to this. But that's because the focus is on the Jew. That's why the Rav of Salvechik Zechel Saglavracha was in favor if you could obtain peace for land transfer. I, very few people believe this anymore after Oslo and everything. But in the days when people were still entertaining the idea that if we give back a certain land to Jordan, to Egypt, to the Palestinians, that we could achieve peace, right? Lubavitch Rebbe was against it. There were other people who were against it. Of Cook, or to you, who the Cook certainly was against that. They felt it was us, or even if it could, it could achieve peace. But the Rev said no. The Rev said it's a mitzvah to give it over. Ravon Lichtenstein Zechotzak Levracha continued that tradition that because the, he said that the, you can give the Kotel back if it could secure peace. The most important thing is Jewish lives. It's not Israel. So I, I would say it's really about the Jewish soul. Where can we keep the Jewish soul beating? And if the Jewish souls, if there are millions of Jewish souls in America and we can keep them connected Jewishly, and the only way we can do so because they're not making Aliyah is, is in America, then we have to pump money in, in, into those institutions. But in my opinion, only in the institutions that are proving effective to keeping Jews Jewish. And we could take the rest and send it to Israel. Okay. That's in line with the Midrash that says the, all the shuls will eventually go to Israel. But you mean the other ones, not necessarily the shuls. The shuls are the things that should say behind, perhaps. But uh, Well, maybe not you. every I hate to say it, but maybe not every shul, you know? Maybe, I hear that. <laughs> maybe so. Do you think it's possible to be a Zionist in the United States without any intention of moving to Israel? I realize this might be a semantic question, but a lot of people wonder about that sort of idea. Can you be a Zionist if you have no intention of moving to Israel? Well, you can't be a good, you can't be a really good Zionist, but you can, you can partake of it. That's what I would say. Um, I, I, I think the ultimate expression of Zionism is Aliyah. I do. Um, speaking about Israel and talking about Israel but uh, that doesn't mean you can't be a part of the movement. That's ultimately what Salvechik was trying to do. He was trying to put American Jewry behind the Yishuv. That's the way he used to refer to it. Mm -hmm. Behind settling Israel, whether that means making Aliyah or giving money or, or lobbying Congress to send the F-15 fighter planes, whatever it is that is necessary. So, you know, I want to revise that a little. I, I, I do think you can be. Um, a political Zionist. You can't be a purely religious Zionist. You know, with, with I, I am in ideology, but in practice, since I don't live in Israel, I don't know if I can fairly say that I'm a, a true religious Zionist because I'm not living in Israel. One day I'll be Zochav, Israel Hashem. I want to bring some Jews, you know, get some more Jews on the lifeboat before, you know, we go. But, but, um, but it's incredibly important to be involved in this movement wherever you live in the world and i think if we define zionism so narrowly that it only applies to jews who make aliyah we're going to lose a lot of support and you could say we don't need your support anymore israel's strong we don't need all the money from that there are people who argue that but the support doesn't hurt number one israel needs friends number two 
it keeps Jews connected to not only Israel, but to Torah. Ki mitzion Torah. Today, if you want to be connected to Torah, you have to be connected to Israel, right? So if we if we define being a Zionist so narrowly, then we're going to be cutting out a lot of Jews from being connected spiritually. I hear that. Let me ask you something based on that, Rabbi Wiles. We might be getting a little bit off topic here, but I think it's a mm-hmm. fascinating discussion. What do you think about non-Israeli Jews giving their opinion publicly about Israeli policies? Meaning, I'm not asking you what you think about this, but for example, the egalitarian plaza at the Kotel, a lot of that is coming from diaspora Jews giving their opinion about it. Or even, for example, you mentioned a moment ago, land for peace. People in America sometimes will say land for peace is necessary. Other people will say it's a terrible thing and they'll criticize Israeli governments that violate their opinion of what they should do. Some would say, obviously, every single Jew, as you just said, is connected to Israel. And therefore, every Jew has a right, perhaps even an obligation, to get up and protest if something is wrong and support those who do what they think is right. On the other hand, if their opinion about policy, especially as it pertains to life and death situations like land for peace, whichever side of the aisle you're on, if you go up there and say, Israel cannot give back an inch of land and you're wrong, and let's say in a given situation they should have, in theory, and people die, the people who are going to pay the price is not the Jew in Toronto. The person paying the price is the Jew in Jerusalem. Yeah, which is why uh, I felt this way for years. I find it, and I'm an American Jew, okay? I find it offensive. I find it offensive. Who, excuse me, (laughs) are you to start telling your brothers and sisters in Israel who are sending their kids to the army what they should give back, what they shouldn't give back? It's the height of chutzpah. Only, (laughs) Only a chutzpah Jew in America could feel like so emboldened to do that it's like it's ridiculous now you can share your opinion there's nothing wrong with sharing your opinion but it has to start and end with i say this as a jew on the sidelines i say this as a jew who loves israel who cares deeply about the state of israel and the people of israel i have cousins there i have this there but i'm not fighting in the army for them so i'm not putting my life on the line i really have no right to impose you want to be part of the process you make Aliyah and you can vote. You can vote Netanyahu in, you can vote Netanyahu out. I know the system is a little broken. It's not so simple, but 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 to it, it's such arrogance. It's such arrogance. And I I've I've bemoaned this for decades. I've seen this for years where groups of rabbis or people get together and they take a big ad, Israel should do this. And every name on the list is a diaspora Jew. It's the biggest chutzpah in the world. It's just like, you know, it's okay to share your opinion, but once your opinion becomes policy and you try to impose it, I mean, that's what happened. It happened, unfortunately, during the Obama years. It did, where there were American, you know, leaders, Jewish leaders that went to Capitol Hill and tried to press their legislative representatives, whether it's in Congress, it's in the White House, to pressure Israel to give back land, to do this, that, and the other. And you think it's the most important thing in the world and Israel will be saved. Honestly, what you think, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but but Israel is a democratically, uh, you know, it's a democracy. It's it's still a democracy. Even after all this stuff, it's, it's still a democracy. Okay. And they get to make the choice. We don't. You want to make the choice, make Aliyah. I feel very strongly about that. I do. And, and 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 I I can't imagine from where you're sitting, Scott, like how you don't find this. Like, really, 
You know, mind your own business. You're, you made a decision, and I understand. I'm not judging that decision, but you made a decision to stay chutz la'aretz. And uh, I'd love to hear your opinion. Well, it depends whether I agree with them or not. <laughs> well, you can't Obviously, I'm joking. Way. Obviously, yeah. I don't mean that. I, I tend to agree with you, but at the same time, maybe well, what's because your feeling? of... What's your feeling? You know what? Because I live in Israel, I'm very nervous. I don't mean only on the podcast, but in general, about feeling a sense of condescension because it's very possible sitting here asking you, Rabbi Wiles, living in New York, I'm here in Ramat Beit Shemesh, why don't you make Aliyah? It can come across as arrogant and I'm nervous about that, not only in terms of the appearance, but in terms of the feeling. It's something which I'm careful not to inculcate and therefore right. I, I want every Jew to feel a sense of ownership of Israel. I do get frustrated when people tell Israel what they should do. It does bother me when delegations of rabbis will come to Israel from whichever side of the political aisle come and right. they'll have a meeting and they'll say, you should do this and you should do that in the Knesset. It bothers me, yes. On the other right. hand, I like the fact that they care. I like the fact they're not doing this to right. undermine Israel. They're doing right. this, they're doing right. this out of a sense of Ahavat Yisrael, out of love of Jews and a love of the land of Israel, even if sometimes I feel their opinions are misguided. So I'm not quite sure. But it can be destructive. It can Absolutely. be destructive. Absolutely. And especially if you start trying to export a Western mentality that does not play out in the Middle East. Okay. But you guys are operating with a different rule book, with a different enemy base. It's very different in Israel than it is America, and that's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. So I, I'm just very much against that, and um, I feel we, we have to have a little more modesty and humility. Um, we can share our opinion and go. That's why I always liked APEC. Honestly, APEC never told Israel what their policy should be, and APEC took a lot of heat over the years for supporting policies that a lot of American Jews didn't like. And they would get up at those conferences. I went for years, those big, you know, Washington conferences, and they would say, listen, we are here. We are unconditionally supporting Israel in whatever decision she makes. And I think that is our role. We are, it, we're like parents. Okay. Well, maybe that's not a perfect metaphor there. Cause sometimes we, you know, we do feel the need and we, and we should tell our kids what to do sometimes, but you know, being a cheerleader, sometimes the parent needs to take on a cheerleading role. And I feel like that's what diaspora Jews need to do. We need to be Israel's cheerleaders and not try to define, you know, the course um, or the, the the direction that she takes. If we want to do that, we have to be there. Otherwise, just send money and support. And if you don't, and a lot of people don't like that, though. Uh, you know, I've spoken to American Jewish leaders who feel like emasculated by that. Like, oh, it's, no, it's our country. It's, it's you know, Israel. And it is every jewish person's country right you know when uh and tebi they always used to say this why did israel go in and, and and rescue these were not necessarily all israelis they they went in because they were jews so we should be able to, but it's different if you don't live there and you don't fight you don't vote you can't have the same impact like in any country i mean i tend to agree with you despite what i said before my inclination still remains on the same side as you're speaking right now even on a simple halachic level, it always bothered me, and my students will remember this, the fact that Yom Tov Sheni in Israel has become a very, very rare phenomenon. The people yeah. who come from Chutz Laaretz to Israel, they all hold by the Chacham Tzvi all of a sudden. I know there are exceptions, <laughs> but it seems that every single year it's becoming more and more common more that people more, don't correct. keep two days of Yom Tov. I'm not speaking halachically. I know most people keep one day in Israel. Fine. 
that war is lost, from my opinion, even though I don't understand how that happened. But almost on an emotional level, forget the halachic issues, almost right. on an emotional level, I was bothered by the assumption that you can't come to Israel and be Israeli without actually making a move to make Aliyah. There is more than just showing up here, which gets back to our opening question, that idea about familiarity and solidarity. The fact that I can come all the time, and when I'm in Israel, I keep one day of Yontif. I'm not pretending it's a reward, but on some level, don't pretend you're Israeli if you're not Israeli. There is a distinction. You have to remember that there's a difference between visiting Israel and living in Israel. I really do think that. There is a difference, and I'm also put off by that, not for halachic reasons, because I do believe also there are legitimate you know sources that justify keeping one day there are minority of sources and somehow people keep relying on those minority sources <laughs> um but it is it does feel weird for me as a diaspora jew you know to keep two days it does feel weird i also put on tefillin during cholamoid because my zaidi from bialystok put on tefillin on cholamoid and when i go there man you have to sit in the back of that shul <laughs> and be very discreet about yeah. your tefillin. You're going to get yelled uh, at. Oh, yeah. It's, and I, I get it. I get it. But, you know, I, you know what, Scott, what you're bringing up is like, like, isn't it good that you feel a little bit weird keeping two days on some level? I say that's exactly the point. It's not the same to visit Israel and to live in Israel. Here comes my arrogance. I'm not trying to say it like right. that. But I think that might be a positive thing to remind people that there's still another step to make. It's great you feel that identification. It's right. great you come here for Yontif. Right. There's one more move you got to make if you want to be fully Israeli. Yeah, right. Although, to push back the other way, the more you make Israel <laughs> appealing and pleasant, oh, just one day as opposed to two. Now, I happen to like keeping two days, but to Sadarm, because you, you don't always get it right the first one, <laughs> you know, um, you know, the more you make things appealing, the more positive and the more you keep that smile going, the more, you know, I, I sometimes I, I struggle with this on principle. I'm a very principled person, but I know sometimes I want to smile through the principles because I can, what, what's the expression? You can get more with honey than you can, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like if the ultimate goal is to get more Jews to Israel, then let's just keep hugging and smiling as we, <laughs> as nefesh benefesh, keep another cha-ching, another, you know. Okay, I hear that. We're coming close to the end of our conversation today. Let's go back to the very beginning. I want to ask you about ways of increasing that sense of solidarity between Jews outside of Israel and those in Israel. We've spoken about different reasons that it might take place, why there might be that greater feeling of solidarity for Jews in Israel versus those who are outside of Israel. Is there something that can be done to try to increase that sense, like over Pesach again, that people who are in Chutzlaretz will also feel that sense of heaviness. I'm not wishing heaviness upon anybody, but I am wishing solidarity that Achdu Yisrael, that we all feel that same thing because when it happens in Israel, it's not the same. Let me back up for a second. Someone said to me with justification, he goes, well, did I feel the same as Jews in Pittsburgh when the Tree of Life synagogue was shot up and all those people were killed? Of course I didn't. People in Pittsburgh felt it much more acutely than I did in Israel. Isn't it the same thing? On one level, yes, because I'm not close. Therefore, it's different, even though obviously I I care, but I can't feel it the same way as something that happened in Efrat, which is 25 minutes from here. On the other hand, on some level, I think that if it happens in Efrat, not that those Jews are worth more, of course not, but Israel being the center, the front lines of Judaism, if we want to put it like that, it should matter more on some level to Klal Yisrael in terms of the sense of uh, of Achdus. It should matter more because there's no mitzvah to live in Pittsburgh and there is to live in Israel. You can just say it. <laughs> it's fine. Charles Bronfman. Charles Bronfman was one of the original donors to Birthright. 
And what's interesting about Charles Bronfman is that he did not donate all that money to birthright because of Jewish continuity. He was concerned that Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews were going to, there was a rift. So he said he was the one that required a few chayalim, a few Israeli soldiers on every birthright bus. That was his contribution. And that was his money. He said, I'm only giving the money if I can get a few soldiers on the bus because he wanted to keep a connection. So I'm giving that as just a very slight example of things that could be done to develop. Because I have students who've gone on birthright trips who maybe haven't been back to Israel, unfortunately. Okay, but they keep in touch with that Israeli soldier that they have a relationship with, believe it or not. When the soldier comes to America once in a while, they, they crash by him on their couch in the city. Um, that is a very, very important thing. What are things that we can do to feel more connected? So I just watched the funeral, this uh, rabbi who lost his wife and children. Um, I think every shul, you know, like when we when you when a shul sends out a notice that someone, God forbid, in the community just died and the funeral will take place, and the shiva will take place, right? Every shul, in my opinion, and it should be every shul. It shouldn't just be orthodox, but, you know, this is the orthodox conundrum. So every orthodox shul, at least, should be sending out, here is the link. Um, or maybe we're going to be actually showing the funeral on a big screen in the auditorium or in the main synagogue, and we're inviting and we're, we're asking everyone to come because this is a levaya, not just for this family. This is a tragedy for all of Klal Yisrael. We all have to be there. There should be rabbis going to make to pay a shiva call. Now, in the height of the Intifada, that's what was happening. And I was very proud of those kinds of missions where rabbis of communities were going with their balabatim on these kind of like missions to Israel where they would pay a shiva call and get there in enough time to actually sit shiva with a family that lost a loved one in a, in a terrorist attack in, in Israel. The more you do that, the more you personalize. You have to think about it, not theologically, not spiritually, but humanly and just personally. What makes us feel connected to our brothers and sisters? And it shouldn't just be Tsar. Israel is 75 years. I, I am. We have the most pathetic Yom Atzmaut events in America. They get worse every year, in my opinion. Okay, so we try to, they just, I don't know, they, they're just not great on Yom Atzmaut. And I always make the same comment. You really need to be in Israel to celebrate Yom Atzma'ut. It feels lame here. And the Israeli Day Parade, it feels lame. It just does. Now, I march in the Israeli Day Parade. I, I haven't, you know, I don't, I don't have a float because that costs money. I just, um, I bring 100, 200 of my students and we march and we get t-shirts and it feels good because that's part of what we do to keep Jews connected. Right. But the more things like that that we can do in a, in a more powerful way with music, with inspiration, with talks and be connected to things going on in Israel. Like, you know, that moment of silence that is that Israel has on Yom HaShoah. Like maybe we should do the moment of silence together. Right. We have the technology for that in America, you know, to, to and, and maybe we should stop doing separate Yom HaShoah events. Maybe we can somehow link up and do them together or. Just make them better and bring more Israelis in, you know, who fought in Sahal and can do things. Because the more stuff like that, the more people get inspired and the more people feel connected and the more people want to eventually make Aliyah. But, you know, we, we, we just have to think more creatively of what's going to hit home on the emotional level. This is all about tugging the emotional strings, in my opinion.
Okay, that's a really important idea, and I really respect that. Thank you for saying that. One final question. Yeah. There's no way to predict this, but Rabbi Wiles, do you think that that emotional gap that exists now, whether it's bigger or smaller than it was before, do you think it's going to grow, or do you think it's going to shrink as time goes on? The gap between Chutz Laaretz Jews and Israeli Jews. I think the more connected Jews in America and in Chutz Laaretz, it's going to shrink, Bezrat Hashem. The more connected you are to your Torah, to your Yiddishkeit, to your brothers and sisters in Israel, you know, Kimitzion, Teitzei Torah, the more you feel connected religiously, the more that's going to shrink. The more you're disconnected from Torah, from Yiddishkeit, the more you're disconnected from Israel. That's the way it works. It works that way. In America, it's been working that way for years and years and years. You know, that's why Kirov and Zionism, as far as I'm concerned, go hand in hand. Because the more we turn Jews on to Yiddishkeit, the more they get turned on to Israel, the more likely they're going to feel something when the next, God forbid, terror attack happens in Israel. The less they feel connected, the less of a moment. They'll take two seconds out of their day just like all of us, let's be honest. We see something terrible happening. Maybe we'll eke out a capital of Tehillim and then we move on with our day. That's going to change when, God forbid, you know the person or, God forbid, you are somehow more connected to what's going on in Israel. You have kids there. You have a son or daughter that's learning their gap year. You're about to go to Israel and it's affecting your trip. Whatever it is, like you need to be affected by it. If you're not affected, the gap is going to grow. And what we have to do is just we have to just throw ourselves more and more into what's happening in Israel and more speakers from Israel, more more time of diaspora Jews to go to Israel, more trips. We, we're taking two trips this summer, Bizrat Hashem. I don't know of any other answer. There's no silver bullet for this I- issue. We're people and people are driven by their emotions, whether that's right or wrong. And the more emotionally connected we are, with our brothers and sisters, with Medinat Yisrael, with Torah Yisrael, with Torah, halacha, mitzvah, spirituality, the more you're going to feel something. It's as simple as that. So I, I really think they go hand in hand. And you could almost gauge the level of connection people have with Israel, with their connection with with Torah, with spirituality. You know, of course, there are exceptions to every rule. If somebody has a cousin, they have a this, they have a that, and they're disconnected religiously, but they have some relative that's living there. Obviously, that cuts right through. But we don't have that, and we can't rely on that because most American Jews don't have that in Israel. Our community has that a lot. You know, people are going, and even in the yeshiva shevelt, in the Orthodox world, People are spending two, three years now in the more yeshivish part, going to wherever they're living in Yerushalayim and spending time in yeshiva. That's a product of money. People can afford to do that, thankfully. It's great. So there's more of a connection, thank God. You know, uh, I, I, I don't, there's no silver bullet to this. We have to just become more and more invested and we have to ch- figure out ways of getting more and more people to Israel to feel more connected. And um, I'll, I'll just do a little commercial. Last week in July, anybody who's listening to this, you want to come. We have our fellowship trip and our heritage trip. We're going to Israel. It's going to be unbelievable. And and I, I tell people, even if you were there last year, you need to keep the connection strong. Because if you let it lapse, your emotions lapse, and you don't feel as connected. It's as simple as that. So if people want to learn more about that trip, Rabbi Wiles, what do they do? Go to the jewishexperience.org website, jewishexperience.org. It's one of the sliders the trip to Israel, the heritage trip. If you take 12 classes with MGE, we'll give you half off. Um, and uh, 
it's an amazing trip. It's a Tanakh-based trip. Uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtab has, has been our uh, our um, tour guide for many, many years, and it's it's an incredible it's an incredible experience. And we bring our fellows there, and there's just Israel is the future for the Jewish people. If you want to get Jews in America excited, I mean, just think about it from what is the most ambitious, just philanthropically, the most ambitious outreach initiative ever launched from diaspora soil. It's birthright, right? It's like $130 million budget a year. Okay. It was, and it was not, it was not conceived of by religious personalities. Michael Steinhardt was a dear friend of mine. He, he's a professed atheist. He's certainly not an Orthodox Jew. Okay. I don't think he's such an atheist. He likes to, you know, put that around a lot. <laughs> he's a Ralph Cook atheist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that That's the kind of right. Exactly. So he, uh, it's such an expensive proposition. Think about it. The flights, the the, the itinerary, the this to take somebody, and 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 you couldn't think of some other idea to turn Jews on without having to schlep them six thousand miles away. What what does that show? The whole world acknowledges, religious, not religious, that what's going to turn American and diaspora Jews on to Yiddishkeit, right, is Israel. So it, it's pretty much acknowledged across the board. And and in those circles that it's not, they're, they're dying, unfortunately. They're dying a very slow death. Uh, and and I, I, I should be plugging my own books, but uh, this book, We Stand Divided, The Rift Between American Jews and Israel, there's some pretty upsetting things that he shares in this book about how American Jews in the beginning, how German Jews were anti-Zionist, because it looked like we had an allegiance to something else. It was unbelievable. There were over 100, quote-unquote, rabbis that went to Woodrow Wilson after the Balfour Declaration. You know this, Scott? Over 100. They signed a petition. They went to Washington to lobby Woodrow Wilson not to support the Balfour Declaration, which was the, you know, the most important sort of recognition amongst the nations of the world that there was a, a tie between the Jew and his homeland, you know, in Israel, specifically in Israel. And, and, and you want to know this? I'm sorry. I know we're, we're, we're late. You can cut this out if you want, but, but, but this is so we have to learn from our history. Albert Einstein was approached by none other than Chaim Weizmann, who later became Israel's first president. So they had a connection because Weizmann was a chemist and, and Einstein respected him to come to America to raise money for the Zionist cause. Okay, this is the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. The established Jewish establishment in Germany, excuse me, went to Albert Einstein to try to convince him not to go. Why? Because they didn't want German Jews to look as though they had some sort of fealty and allegiance to any other country other than the fatherland, it's Germany. And these quote-unquote rabbis did the same thing in America, in the United States. And by the way, you know what Albert Einstein did? He told him to go fly a kite. He came to America with Chaim Weizmann and they, to raise money for the Zionist cause, and they did very poorly. And you know why they did poorly? Because who were the Jews that came out for, for Einstein, for Weizmann, for Zionism? They were the European refugees who didn't have a lot of money. The entrenched American Jews who had the real money they didn't care. They didn't care. And that seals the deal. The Jews who care about Israel are the Jews that have nitzchis. They're the ones that are going to have eternity. They're the ones whose kids and grandchildren are going to be Jewish. 
the ones that turn their back on Israel, and I'm not trying to say this on some sort of theological level, even though I, I think it's true, but I'm saying completely sociologically, that's what's happening. The Jews that care more, are more invested, are going back and forth, those are the ones whose kids, and I'm including my students who are not Orthodox, who are conservative and reform, who are making Aliyah or going to Israel and are caring about Jewish causes, maybe not observant, but they care, they want to be in, they come to classes, they still count, and please God, their children and their grandchildren will, will be with us as well. Because it, it all, again, it's all about keeping the focus on Israel. Okay, well, Rabbi Wilds, I am so glad that I thought of asking you to talk about this topic today because you provided a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight, and I learned a lot, and I really appreciate you joining me today, so thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure, and just keep talking about this because I... This this lack of feeling, it's upsetting. I felt it in the hotel, Pesach. Um, there was one Israeli couple there from Ranana who came. <laughs> they came to our Pesach. They kept one day, by the way. They came to, and they were walking around. They were walking around a little dog face. They were upset. They were like, "We got to go back to Israel. We don't, you know, we we don't feel it here." So it's a real issue. And this is, and it was an Orthodox program. I'll say something, which is that I definitely visit Chutzlaris. I'm not somebody who never leaves Israel. I don't go that often. But when something is happening in Israel that's bad, chas v'shalom, that's the time that I least want to be outside of Israel. Yeah. You most feel the need to be here with the people who live in Israel, who understand, and just to be present. I'm not pretending I'm a soldier. I'm not doing anything to help whatever is happening. But if there are bombs falling on Steyrot, if there are bombs falling in the Golan, as happened over Pesach, I wouldn't want to be outside of Israel at that point. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. It's my honor and pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.